You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and canna-curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, May 26, 2022. This is episode number 288. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, this show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about two chains shout out to New York City, Louisiana to allow medical cannabis use for state employees, psilocybin and depression study, consumption lounges coming to San Luis Obispo County, 185 Illinois adult use licenses to be awarded on Friday, a meeting at the FDA, Georgia voters approve a legalization ballot question, Watch out for the wave of boof that's coming and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Actually, you will get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? So my story is coming from London Jen over at uh, allhiphop.com. And um, it is Two Chains praises New York City for their cannabis laws. Nobody's got cannabis culture down like California being quasi-legal for 26 years now. We've got over a quarter century lead of the, over the rest of the industry when it comes to the look, the feel, the swag, but also what's historically been projected to others in the industry. So it should be no surprise to anybody else that the rest of America rapidly, as the rest of America rapidly decriminalizes, the comparisons would start to surface. Admittedly, being in our own... California bubble, we often debate here on stage which aspects of the game revealed in emerging markets remind us of our own backyard, and things can get pretty heated, too. But the one that pops up most by a landslide is New York. I'm talking every side of the game, from economic opportunity, politics, legacy advocacy, and activism, and now law enforcement. 
And it's one thing to hear native Californians and New Yorkers debate the issues where obviously you'll have implicit bias playing a major factor on either side. But for today's story, we have a well-known and traveled Atlanta rapper comparing the laxness of new cannabis laws in New York to how law enforcement handles public consumption in California. Let's go to the clip. I remember being in New York, they had the hip hop police. They used to fuck with us at the cat. We used to jump down. Man, that ain't got a chance for a nigga walking on the gas, man. New York, I'm glad y'all found some more shit to be upset about. Stop fucking with nigga about this shit like this. No, for real, in front of 12, they're not tripping. They're not tripping. If you couldn't understand him, he said that New York has fucking turned to Cali. So that was platinum selling multifaceted recording artist Tahid Epps, aka Titty Boy, better known to the more casual listener as Two Chains. And he's known for much more than just his witty punchlines over 808s. The former collegiate basketball star owns several restaurants, clothing brands, a nail shop, and he's been tiptoeing into the cannabis industry over the last few years as well. His most recent venture was an investment into Pineapple Express with my good friend Sean Cradle. What up, Sean? Uh, here in LA. Um, Two Chains is listed as the Hollywood Dispensary's second largest shareholder. So if you see him floating around Melrose and Vine uh, more often than before, you may know a little bit more about why. So I got a couple questions for the team here. Um, number one, is Two Chains correct in the direct comparison of how law enforcement in New York handles smoking in public compared to California? And the second one, if not New York, what other states uh, or state or states most closely resemble California and their execution of cannabis policies for better or for worse. Very interested in hearing some of these answers. This is Rico Lameet, the dopest dad on the street for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What do y'all think? Buy better gas. <laughs> I just wanted to add uh, to this story, Rico. I was in New York this weekend for MJ Unpacked. The last time I was in um, New York was 2018, pre-pandemic. And I must say, smoking weed outside of the Hilton in Midtown on the sidewalk with the rest of my colleagues in the middle of the day felt pretty like pretty much like Oakland or like L.A. Like I thought I was in not in New York City. So that was one of the things that I took with me from this trip was how different it is when it comes to smoking cannabis publicly. Um, I was also in Central Park doing it with a group of friends um, and using psychedelics uh, responsibly, of course. Um, but technically, you're not allowed to smoke in public parks in new york city but um smoking on the sidewalk is a-okay are you saying it felt like oakland because of the high rate of crime around you nicole <laughs> <laughs> i'm saying that i felt like i was in oakland because i was smoking weed on the streets in new york city i mean te technically in la or in oakland is it technically legal to walk around smoking or is it just ignored by police? I think it's just decriminalized. So police are not no. concerned about arresting people. Like it's a waste of time. Police have real crime to deal with in those yeah. areas. There's actual real crime. Right. It's not it's not legalized. And the same thing for New York. It's not legal. It's just decriminalized. So police are no longer wasting time by harassing people that are smoking weed publicly. I wouldn't call it decriminalized. I call it a lack of resources for them to be able to enforce any actual applicable laws. I've lived in Oakland since 2013. Um, I know that Oakland was one of the first to make cannabis the lowest police priority. It's called Measure Z. 
and it was interpreted differently. So there was a bunch of Mezzer Z lounges and dispensaries. One of the first dispensaries I ever got to experience was actually a Measure Z lounge. So it's it's been pretty wild in Oakland for since Measure Z passed. Was it SR seventy one? No, it was uh, Measure Z. No, SR seventy one was one of the lounges that was created under Measure Z, and that's why I'm asking if that was the lounge. Oh no, I went to the Sunny Spot Cafe right in downtown. The Oaksterdam Student Lounge was pretty fun. So SR seventy one was the first one, and it was called the SR seventy one because the SR seventy one, in government terms, is a plane that flies right under the radar. Nice. Back in the good old days. Don't we miss it? Happy belated birthday, Jason. What were you smoking on for your birthday? I only smoke the best weed in the fucking world. Top three. He's not going to give it up. Top three is whatever I'm smoking on is the best weed in the world. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. He's the industry's longest continuously operating retailer, and, and after experiencing a bit of a hangover this morning for celebrating his birthday yesterday harder than fuck and smoking the best weed in the world all damn day, I think this morning he's got a little less energy than Jeb Bush did back in 2016. Up next is Jason Beck. How are you this morning, my man, and what do you got? The booth. You said the booth? Booth? You're going to need a booth vest? Oh, yes. Very low energy, Rico. Very, very low energy. But nonetheless, my headline, as you all, I'm sure, will know, you're going to love this one. It's going to fucking definitely trigger somebody out there, whether... For whatever reason, I don't really care. But nonetheless, the Ukraine war supply chain woes caused cannabis fertilizer shortage and increased costs. That's right. The supply chain shortage isn't just for baby formula, but it's also for fertilizer. Where Russia's invasion of the Ukraine as well as ongoing supply chain issues are causing a global fertilizer shortfall, leading cannabis growers to brace for higher prices. With disruptions taking place, this will inevitably lead to inflation on not only fertilizers, but harvested food crops and potentially cannabis, said Houston Holster, manager of the Environmental Sciences Group and senior pest control advisor at Urban Grow, a marijuana cultivation facility designed and engineered firm based in Lafayette, Colorado not to be confused with Urban Grow, the stores in San Diego. Ukraine and Russia combined provide nearly 28% of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium to the global market, according to Holster. Without the access to fertilizers, this can lead to lower yields, which in turn will create lower quality product as well as limited surplus, he said. And that could put could could push up what we have low wholesale cannabis prices, Hersher said, resulting in higher prices for retail and dispensary operators and consumers. This is leading this is this is leading experts to suggest growers adjust their purchasing practices, including stocking up on supplies, as well as adopting cultivation methods that use less fertilizer. Alan Nugent, CEO and founder of a of Mainstream, a Seattle-based B2B integrated supply procurement platform for cannabis companies, said the situation is absolutely disastrous for the cannabis supply chain. Sky-high fertilizer prices 
will have farmers worldwide scaling back its use and reducing the amount of land they're cultivating, he added. Russia is the largest global exporter of fertilizer and soil nutrients, uh, you know, because they're the shit, and U.S. sanctions on trade with the country because of its Ukraine invasion and further disrupting the global supply chain. According to Reuters, U.S. farmers' fertilizer bills are expected to go up by 12% this year after a 17% increase in 2021. The quarterly magazine Modern Farmer reported that prices for the three key fertilizers have skyrocketed over the past year. I can't even say some of these, one of these ones, but one of them is ammonia, a liquid nitrogen, and guess what? That's right, urea. That's right. <laughs> Earlier this month, the Biden administration announced it is doubling down an initial $250 million investment in domestic fertilizer production to $500 million so they can obtain the inputs they need at prices they can afford to maximize yields. But Nugent expects much, doesn't expect much. If not at all, money will go to commercial agriculture crops such as soy and corn. Guess who gets the short end of the stick, he said. That's right, the cannabis industry, because that's what we're accustomed to. The cannabis industry has been struggling with supply chain problems since, since COVID-19 pandemic upended shipping and logistics in 2020. Couple that with the Russian-Ukraine conflict, and Nugent said his software shows that some U.S. cannabis growers are unable to buy all the nutrients they need because of the current supply chain shortfall. Well, I think that's actually because of, of the price of wholesale cannabis overall. And this article just goes on and on and on. But I've had far too much to drink yesterday and celebrated my birthday way too hard. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Hey, happy birthday, Jason. But um, you know what? Uh, regen farmers don't give a shit, literally, because they compost and make their own soil. So I guess all the whack dudes will have to just keep, you know, buying on other markets, whatever. But I don't think the regen crew, you know, they, they don't even care because they got their source. Yeah. Biodynamic farming. That's where it's at. Yep. Just compost. Free Brittany G. <laughs> okay. Yes. I just like the free Britney. Free free Britney just in general. Just the, just free her. All the the hippies. All the, the hippies were right. Listen to the hippies. They know regenerative farming is where it's at. Yes indeed. Living soil. It's, Big shout out to Luma Farms. Never trust a hippie. It's the future, Jason. They just built the industry, dude. <laughs> Still, you can never trust a hippie. You can never wear trust someone with colored socks on. Uh, <laughs> what? what? No, Jason, I think you're mistaking a hippie for a wookie. A wookie is like a negative hippie. They didn't wear that, socks, dude. though, man. Those are the what? golfers. That, those are your Republican golfers that wear the colored socks. Dude. No, make they sure wear you personalized make you clip socks, that. Eric. Personalized. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to give the last word to Nate and then we're going to move on. Nate, you're on mute. Do you have colored socks on, Nate? Nate looks like he wears colored socks. <laughs> Definitely. All right, let's keep smoking the news. All right, this doctor has been around so long that he probably wrote your parents' medical 
cannabis recommendation. This doctor has had more patients than liberals waiting in line at a President Biden book signing. Founder of Medican and co-founder of CESC, the nonprofit cannabis research organization. It's none other than Dr. Gene Talleyrand. Dr. Gene Talleyrand, please give us our daily dose. Thanks, Jason. Happy belated birthday. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. My headline is documentation of medical cannabis use lags patient reported measures. I'm calling out my colleagues on this one. A study recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA Network Open, finds doctors are not documenting medical cannabis use. The study is a cross-sectional survey of 1,688 Kaiser patients. This research occurred in Washington state where non-medical and medical cannabis are legal. Almost 40% of the patients surveyed admitted to using cannabis in the past year. 26.5% reported using medical cannabis and 35.1% reported having medical symptoms that benefited from their cannabis use. As referenced, the CDC reports that only 18% of Americans use cannabis. Scientific journals often state that there's insufficient clinical evidence for the medical use of cannabis. However, this real-world data shows at least one out of three patients use cannabis for medical reasons. The patients in the study reported using cannabis for health concerns, such as pain, sleep, stress, anxiety, and depression. What's more, the investigators linked their responses to medical charts and found only 4.8% had their medical cannabis use documented. That's only 10% of the patients having their medical cannabis use documented. This study demonstrated that most medical cannabis use not documented in medical records uh, was not documented in medical records, uh, wrote the authors. So how can science prove clinical benefits from medical use when it's not documenting it? While further clinical research is needed, the lack of documentation reflects the absence of health system support. Is this the de facto don't ask, don't tell policy of the healthcare industry, or is this just a Kaiser thing? Perhaps healthcare providers are talking with their patients about cannabis and just not documenting it. Or perhaps they are avoiding the topic entirely because they feel uncomfortable with the subject. Or maybe they're just not asking the right questions. Patients using cannabis would benefit from information on the risk of cannabis use, as well as discussion on the evidence of cannabis as a treatment alternative. In this study, 25% more patients responded positive to cannabis use when asked implicitly, what are the health reasons for cannabis use, rather than explicitly, do you use medical cannabis? The stigma of cannabis use and the assumption that doctors are just not interested may be other reasons for the lack of documentation. As a doctor, I've been documenting medical cannabis use for over 20 years. I use a simple set of four questions to start a discussion. What are you using cannabis for? How much do you use? Does it work? And have you had any adverse events? These questions lead to important and often interesting conversations where I learn from my patients and I'm able to share scientific evidence. Additionally, I can understand which products and dosages are safe and effective. 
What do you think? Are doctors to blame for the lack of clinical studies on cannabis? Or is this study a sign of lack of support from Kaiser and the healthcare industry? This is Dr. Jean Talleyrand reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Dr. Talleyrand, I, I am a Kaiser patient, and I asked my doctor if he knew what the endocannabinoid system was, and he did not. Right, right. That's also another reason. They just don't know, so they, they, they uh, hide behind their lack of knowledge and just don't talk about it. I think it's a don't ask, don't tell thing. Totally, Dr. Jean. My, uh, my lady's a nurse. She works at Kaiser, and uh, we've talked about it. And it's just like they don't want to hear it, man. They they just they're just not interested. They don't want to hear it. Yeah, it may also be a fear of getting fired. I don't know, uh, but it, it's a shame because there's a lot of valuable information out there. In the Whatever have you ever Hippocratic oath? Are they supposed to like be, have their patients' uh, uh, well-being in mind before all else? Uh, well, just do no harm, but the Hippocratic Oath is hypocritical. Have you ever had anyone, any of your patients say that they thought they were addicted to cannabis? No, no, uh, uh, mostly, uh, oh, actually, no, no, actually, no, sorry. I've had people tell me that they were addicted to cannabis, but no patients tell me that. Uh, so off on the side, people have told me. Got it. Okay, we've got Nick up there from the There are no audience. addictive components in cannabis, for the record. I agree with you, Jason, but just wondering. Nick, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, so there are only 13% of medical schools in the country that teach about the endocannabinoid system. So I mean, what's that? Out of 154 schools, we're looking at maybe 20 of them teach about the endocannabinoid system. So... Um, that's something that we really need to change because like you said, the, the future of cannabis is in medicine. And if our doctors aren't even learning about it, then there's no way that we're going to progress. That's right. Agreed. Good point, Nicholas. It all starts with Texas because Texas writes the textbooks. <laughs> Texas textbooks burn all the trash. Yeah, I was going to say burn all the textbooks. fucking Texas textbooks. Fuck their yeah. educational system right now. Yeah. Texas is the largest purchaser of textbooks in the entire nation. So they dictate what goes into all the textbooks. That's no mistake. That's horrible. Follow That's the money. Facts. Fun facts. Thanks, Jason. Let's keep it moving. Yep. She's a Northern California-based pot-smoking PhD, remaining perpetually optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Coming to the stage next is a political economist and the founder of Mahajan Consulting, Manika Mahajan. What you got for us today? Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much, Rico, for that intro. Today, I'm bringing you a story from Ghana, where a civil society organization is pushing for the release of drug war prisoners. I'll warn you that the linked article is a bit confusing and clear information on drug policy in Ghana is sparse, so I'm going to try and clarify. First, for a bigger picture view of the continent, with annual prevalence rates of 13.2%, the African continent has one of the highest consumption rates in the world, according to Prohibition Partners 2019 data. And it's a hotspot in the war on drugs, the global war on drugs. In 2016, Africa recorded 17% of total seizures of cannabis in the world, <clears throat> Ghana, a country that's situated between the Ivory Coast and Togo, is the second most populous country in the West African region after Nigeria. 
A little over two years ago, in March 2020, Ghana's parliament passed the Narcotics Control Commission, the NCC, uh, Act, which allowed the use and cultivation of hemp for medical and industrial uses, meaning it only legalized the licensed cultivation and medical use of plants with less than 0.3% THC. It became law when the president signed it on May 11th. That's again, two years ago in 2020. Penalties were modified from up to 10 years in prison to a fine. But if someone defaulted on payment of the fine, they could still serve up to 15 months in prison. The act also allowed a court to order treatment and rehab for a person convicted of purchasing a narcotic drug. So although you may have read that Ghana has legalized cannabis, what it actually did was allow the su a, a subset of cannabis that we refer to as industrial hemp. Not what I would classify as deep reform, but rather a small positive step to address years of failed drug policies. The NCC claims to treat illicit drug use as a public health crisis rather than a strictly law enforcement issue by decriminalizing certain narcotics and prioritizing treatment and rehab for drug addicts. A local civil society organization, the Perfector of Sentiments, or POS Foundation, is now calling for the president, Nana Ado Tankwa Akufoado, to grant amnesty to persons imprisoned for drug use before the Narcotics Control Commission Act came into being. And the executive director of the POS Foundation, Mr. Jonathan Osei Owusu, made the appeal at a media engagement on ensuring effective implementation of the NCC Act, saying, quote, drug use is a public health matter and a human rights issue per the new Narcotics Control Commission Act. And so we should see some mercy for those who are already in prison, end quote. The media engagement formed a part of a project being implemented by POS Foundation, International Drug Policy Consortium Africa, and the West African Drug Policy Network with funding from the Open Society Foundation. Mr. Owusu went on to say, quote, we're not talking about drug traffickers or traders or those who are selling and planting. We're talking about the youth who are in prison. The prison is already congested, end quote. And he argues that nonviolent drug users should be granted, granted amnesty. They're making this case within the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, which were adopted by the United Nations in 2015 as a universal call to, uh, call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that by 2030, all people enjoy peace and prosperity. Maria Goretti Loglo, uh, Africa Consultant, International Drug Policy Consortium, made a presentation on Ghana's commitment to international and regional drug reform, saying, quote, until we're able to address the issue of drugs, looking at it from the perspective that it cuts across all the SDGs, we cannot achieve the SDGs. This situates drug policy within broader development objectives. She also called on the media to hold the government accountable to international commitments on issues of drugs for the well-being and welfare of the citizenry. A former director of the Narcotics Control Commission called on governments to ensure that the licensing regime for the cultivation, cultivation of cannabis, which they're using to refer to hemp, was transparent and fair with rigorous monitoring to ensure that the cultivation was not hijacked by the powerful and in order to ensure that hemp production would contribute to Ghana's development as a country. So the bottom line is that Ghana has made some progress in reforming its drug policies, but still has a thriving underground market and continues to criminalize users and producers. While it was difficult to find a clear data point on how many prisoners there are, a 2015 source suggests that there are over 11,000 people in prison for drug-related offenses, including 8,600 prisoners awaiting trial. That figure is unverified and potentially underestimates the true scale of imprisonment. The POS Foundation would like to see those individuals freed.
that's what I've got to you today. I've got for you today. My name is Menika Mahajan, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What does the POS stand for in the POS Foundation, Menika? Uh, it's the Perfector of Sentiments. Quite yeah, because POS can go a lot of different ways, and it's not just for point of It really sales. can, yeah. yeah. So many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gets true. me every time. It's like, wait, what? Software. Yeah, oh, okay. this POS. <laughs> All right. No other comments? Should, I'm gonna, should I relight or should we go on? Relight. Yeah, baby. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any exceptions in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. If Bono had an anaconda, his name would be Herrick Hiss. Lareda. But Bono doesn't have an anaconda because he has a stunt double named Eric Hess Lareda, known for his good deeds and being a true steward of the outdoor plant. This freedom-fighting farmer's friend and Bono's, not to mention an award-winning writer, journalist, event producer, and content ninja. Here to give it to you straight, it's Eric Hess Lareda. Thank you, Jason. Um, hey, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from High Times. And it's psilocybin causes significant reduction in symptoms of depression, largest of its kind study shows. So at the American Psychiatric Association annual meeting that began on May 21 in New Orleans, Compass Pathways unveiled the largest randomized controlled double-blind study of psilocybin therapy ever completed, according to a May 24 press release. And the data shows significant improvements to the treatment-resistant depression TRD symptoms. Um, participants were given a single dose of investigational COMP360 psilocybin in doses of 25 milligrams or 10 milligrams compared to 1 milligrams in patients with TRD. For the study, 203, uh, 233 patients with TRD received either 1 milligram, 10 milligrams, or 25 milligrams uh, COMP360 psilocybin, along with psychological support from therapists. Symptoms of depression were calculated using the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale, or MODERS. Um, I think I'm pronouncing it right. The MODERS system has been used in the world of psychiatry since 1979 and measures apparent sadness, uh, reported sadness, intertention, reduced sleep, reduced appetite, and concentration difficulty, typically in a 10-item questionnaire. The people who received a 25 milligram dose of COMP360 with psychological support experienced a highly statistically significant reduction in symptoms of depression after three weeks. The difference between the group that received 25 milligrams and the group that received one milligram was negative 6.6 on the moderate depression scale at week three. The effects also lasted very long, for three months in some cases. The findings show that psilocybin provides a rapid and durable response for up to 12 weeks. Treatment-resistant depression is one of the biggest challenges we face in psychiatry, and chances of success decreases with each treatment that a patient tries, said Dr. Jay Hellerstein, MD, a principal investigator in this disease for people living is the largest to date using psilocybin to treat depression in people who aren't helped by existing therapies. Tough challenges require thinking outside the box, in this case with the, kind of al um, with the active alkaloids from psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, even Canadian Senator Larry Campbell admitted that he takes microdoses of psilocybin for treatment of depression. 
There's a divide in belief surrounding serotonin uptake re-inhibitors, SSRIs. Why some say SSRIs are lifesavers, others say they instead create an unnatural balance of neurotransmitters. Only a doctor can give you the final answer to that, and it's assumed that people with TRD have already ruled out SSRI drugs like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, and Celexa. The study cites data showing that over 320 million people globally suffer with major depression disorder, MDD. About a third of these patients, a whopping 100 million people, aren't helped by existing therapies and therefore have TRD. And the most sobering data point, as many as 30% of them attempt suicide at least once during their lifetime. In any case, psilocybin presents an entirely new mechanism for controlling treatment-resistant depression. The APA will also hold an online uh, experience um, June 7 to 10, in case you missed the May event in New Orleans. And I just want to add that personally, I found psilocybin a very powerful medicine for personal growth, mental health, and creativity. I've been able to introduce multiple friends over the last couple decades it's a very powerful journey if done in the right context. And I think if you want to know more about traditional approaches, which I think are also really important along with the clinical, um, please learn more about Maria Sabina. She's known as the sacerdote de los hongos magicos, or the priestess of uh, magic mushrooms. And that's what I've got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. What does TRD stand for, Eric? Because I only know it to stand for TERD. <laughs> no, in this case, it's something very different, which is treatment-resistant depression, which is kind of a turdy thing to happen to you. Depression is real. It, it especially affects now. your life especially so now. deeply, right. especially now. I, I just think those numbers are going to go up and up and up, and, and a lot of it is not reported. Well, that's why I wanted to bring so this, this up, is... Susan, because I think a lot of people are dealing with so much stuff now. So um, these kinds of therapies and treatments that are being explored are... are Super important because, um, you know, as uh, we're people around the world, we're going through. Everybody's got a, a lot to deal with. Dr. Clifton, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, I I I, uh, I, I love the idea of psilocybin being used for treatment-resistant depression, and these numbers are 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 accurate. There's a lot of people on Paxil or Prozac that we then add a second antidepressant to, and they're still uh, not getting complete relief of their depression, really not even getting 50% control of their depression. So there's a lot of people who aren't helped by existing therapies. And uh, one small study showed that even though, you know, the rates of sort of a bad trip with a, with a full dose psilocybin uh, treatment approaches 25%, 25% of people say they had a bad trip where they experienced, you know, which is basically the equivalent of an anxiety attack. And um, even so, they still describe it as one of the most spiritual experiences of their lifetime and something that has allowed them to make, you know, major steps forward in in things that they were working on in depression or, or I mean, it's still one of their biggest spiritual events of their life. So I don't think we should be afraid of people who have to move through a bad trip process during this uh, dosing. It's uh, it's very exciting. When people hear about this and they want to try it, where are they supposed to even find psilocybin? Well, John Erickson in West Hollywood just uh, entered a decriminalization of psilocybin. And so soon... I'm going to open up a, a mushroom store. You are? <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. That's why I told them I want them to introduce the kind of language. Wow. Okay. So uh, West Hollywood, a mushroom 
tourism. Yeah, let's Oakland, go. Oakland also is already moving on that as well, and Seattle and PNW. You know, places in the Pacific Northwest are are on it. Yeah, the Mushroom Church in Oakland was raided, but we believe it's just because they knew Dave had tons of cash there all the time. He was never arrested, right? Not to my understanding, he was never arrested, but it was raided. Soon to be West Hollywood Mushroom Man Jason Beck. What are you going to call it, Jason? Shrooms on Sunset. Wow. SOS, baby. SOS. Yeah, that's great. I dig it. When was the raid on the Oakland um, Mushroom Church? Years ago. Yeah, I want to say it was before the pandemic, right? Way before the pandemic. Yeah. So if you need psilocybin right now, you can go to Oakland, search for the Mushroom Church. But let's keep there's a, There's other stores, too, that have opened in Oakland as well. Let's do it. She's a badass San Francisco-based can of mama with the voice of an angel and the list of titles longer than a CVS receipt. The co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, chaired the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and the founder of San Fran Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project is here to break us off with a little something to get our day started. Laura DeCaro, what you got for us today? Well, well, well. Thank you so much for that, Rico. Uh, today, I have something out of Louisiana. It's a Louisiana bill to allow state employees to use medical cannabis receives unanimous vote. Who heard of such a thing these days, right? So anyway, this is by Nicole Porter for High Times. Uh, apparently, House Bill 988 introduced by Mandy Landry, a Democrat representing New Orleans Parish which does include the city of New Orleans and Algiers, among other cities and towns, was passed by the Louisiana House, and it's now sitting in the Senate. Um, the, the bill is, um, you know, the, the, the title of the headline is a little bit misleading because the bill would still prohibit the use um, or, um, you know, it would allow for negative consequences for any employee who's impaired on the premises of the employer or during work hours, or whose principal responsibility is to operate a state vehicle, maintain a state vehicle, or supervise any employee who drives or maintains a state vehicle. The provisions of the section also don't apply to um, emergency medical services, law enforcement, public safety officials, or any state employee of the horse racing commission and firefighter services. So it's actually quite limited, uh, contrary to the representation made in the, the headline. But uh, the Louisiana Board of uh, Pharmacy apparently estimated that there are 43,000 medical cannabis consumers in the state, which is probably low, um, going back to Dr. Talleyrand's article. And currently only nine pharmacies are available in Louisiana to serve them. That is a state of almost 4.7 million people. Uh, At the committee meeting, apparently Louisiana Department of Administration Communications director testified that his own department already does have regulations in place to prevent discrimination for medical cannabis consumption, which is positive. And Representative Ed Larvadian, I'm sorry, I probably slaughtered his last name, said we're, we're going to have to change how we deal with medical marijuana, but this is a first step. He also requested firefighters and law enforcement be included in these protections as well. So Tony Landry, a council member for the Veterans Action Council, I'm not sure if we have anyone from VAC in the audience today, but please do raise your hand if we do, 
uh, is recorded as commenting that neither law enforcement nor firefighters are allowed to consume even CBD since, quote, it can accumulate in your body over time and cause a positive test. I'm in favor of this bill, and I just think we need to leave no employee behind. Last summer, Louisiana decriminalized cannabis with Act 247, which imposed a fine of $100 or court summons for possessions of 14 grams or less. But earlier this year, House Bill 700 was introduced by Representative Larry Bagley, a Republican representing three parishes in the northwest portion of the state, bordering Texas, to imprison minors who possessed a small amount of cannabis. On March 23rd, the Louisiana Progress uh, tweeted that this was very, 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 very bad idea. <laughs> I tend to agree. Currently, that article is still awaiting discussion in the House, but the uh, bill page indicates that it was engrossed, meaning it is in final form and it is ready for third reading and final passage. Um, it does contain, it, I should note, an exception for, quote, any person under 18 years of age who is a patient of the state-sponsored medical marijuana program in Louisiana and possesses medical marijuana in a form permissible under state law for a condition enumerated therein which is a pretty tight exception. Anyway, um, it's progress. It's small. I'm curious to hear if there's anybody in Louisiana in the audience that they'd like to come up and comment. My name is Laura DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. It's, it's so weird that the health department is having to estimate how many patients there are. Shouldn't they just have a spreadsheet and, and know exactly how many? Um, I, I don't know actually what the registration process is and if that would be available like on demand for them, but yeah, it would seem logical in Louisiana, especially. They would know, right? I mean, it's weird. Yeah. Yay, we've got ATN up from the audience. ATN, did you want to weigh in on Lara's headline? Uh, yes, we would like to, as a uh, founding member of the Veterans Action Council, I would like to congratulate uh, Tony Landry on his hard work and dedication there in Louisiana. Uh, he is a medical patient who was safe in Arizona, but moved back to Louisiana, my home state and his home state to actually change the laws and he is actually suffering as a patient because he has no access and cannot afford to be in the state program so he has been up there for the past month uh, driving 200 miles each way just to uh, help out and lend a hand and he has been diligent strong and we at uh, the veterans action council are extremely proud of the direction that he's doing he also uh, worked on a measure <clears throat> which passed unanimously to protect uh, Louisiana employees uh, from uh, further discrimination for cannabis, which we can't even do here in California. So congratulations, Tony. Keep up the great work. We love you and what you're doing. Yay, VAC. You guys are doing great work. Yeah, thank you for everything you do, ATN. Really appreciate it. But let's keep smoking the news. We've got quite a few more stories. She's an attorney in law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and that's right, psychedelics. Coming next to the stage, it's the founder of Cannabis Blog and Podcast, Shall We Toke? It's none other than Shalina Panu. Thanks so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is 
Will TikTok allow cannabis ads from New York regulators? As reported by Rolling Stone in March 2021, New York legalized recreational cannabis, becoming the 15th state to do so. Government agencies are highly aware that the state is expected to be a multi-billion dollar industry, and as such, they are finding ways to regulate cannabis within the state. One of the regulations requires an education campaign regarding the legalization of adult-use cannabis and the impact of cannabis use on public health and safety, which includes providing general education about cannabis law. Although legal states have yet to commence until later this year, New York has been quick to jump into the industry using other established markets as precedent. Chris Alexander, who is executive director of New York's Office of Cannabis Management, stated, legalization was such a significant policy shift, lifestyle shift for the entire state, regulators and law enforcement included, but also parents, educators, and anybody dealing with young people. He further states the mandate to our office was that we work with our partners in state government to educate the state population on what this means as well as take important steps to improve public health outcomes across the board. The state has enacted new public service announcements about cannabis via public transportation, billboards, subway cars, and even short videos during ad spots on local TV news stations, educating the public about using cannabis during pregnancy and nursing, as well as warning of dangers of driving while high. The ads are even on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. However, one place that cannabis ads are not allowed is on TikTok. As such, New York's Office of Cannabis Management sent a letter to TikTok's CEO and COO on May 23rd, urging TikTok to allow the use of the word cannabis in public education advertisements, where the ads are sponsored by a government entity and promoting public health and safety. They explain how they have launched education campaigns successfully on billboards all throughout New York, on local TV stations, and on major social media platforms. But when attempting to do so, the same attempting to do the same on TikTok, they were informed TikTok does not take cannabis ads of any kind, including ones from government accounts promoting health and education. We presume this is tied to the section of your industry entry advertising policy restricting depiction or featuring of drug-related words, symbols, or images. The letter further states, but we know our colleagues at the New York State Department of Health have run paid advertisements on TikTok as part of their public health campaigns. We ask you to please reconsider your current blanket ban on advertisements using the word canvas on TikTok. TikTok currently has an advertising policy that forbids the promotion, sale, solicitation of, or facilitation of access to illegal drugs, homeopathy, sorry, homeopathy, and enhancement performance, including weight loss. Interesting to note, TikTok isn't the only platform that has refused to allow cannabis, as some TV stations have not allowed it, but it is the most consequential. TikTok reaches reaches people globally, and blocking this access can block access of information to such a large demographic of people, especially that of the youth who this office believe is TikTok's biggest and most influential audience. No word on whether TikTok has responded to the request, but Alexander hopes that more pressure will hopefully get TikTok to waive their no cannabis advertising policy. What are your thoughts on TikTok's cannabis ban? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. China, 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 China. Huh? Oh, okay. Didn't didn't the Bureau of Cannabis Control get in trouble for putting their sign on the on the building in their first office because there was a cannabis leaf? <laughs> Remember that? Am I am I remembering that correctly? I'm not sure about that one. I haven't I yeah. didn't hear about that. I don't remember that one. I'm pretty sure that happened. China. Which is hysterical. They're in charge of the rules. <laughs> they couldn't even hang their own sign. That that I'm pretty sure that happened. That should have been a much bigger story. We should all remember that. 
I do most of my growth on TikTok. I'm up to, um, this is Dr. Mary Clifton. I'm up to almost 30,000 people there. And it is a real hassle. I mean, it's a, it's a, every time I get a great trending story, I, my, my, I get a little sort of static on my system. And then when I open it up again, it's like I opened it up for the first time. I don't lose the people I have, but I lose all of my saved hashtags. You know, I have to go. I mean, it's, it's like starting from scratch all the time. It's, it's annoying. I mean, I love TikTok and I'm very entertained by it, but man, this cannabis and this cannabis uh, uh, restriction on all of the social media makes it really difficult to help people to understand what cannabis really is. Well, I'm, you sure, leave- Elon Musk, I'm sure Elon Musk is going to buy Facebook and Instagram before he ever buys TikTok because TikTok is owned by China. And, and don't they, do you leave your app on when you're not on TikTok, Dr. Mary? Uh, yeah, I don't think about signing off, of, signing out or signing in. Yeah, there's a big controversy about them watching where you're going and selling your data. Well, it's interesting because, you know, if you sign out and sign back in, you lose all of your drafts. So yeah. everybody stays logged but in. The same, but that's the same on Instagram, too. TikTok is not owned by China. It's owned by Oracle and Walmart, thanks to Trump. China. China, China, China. TikTok is... I'd like to see... I'd like to see Elon Musk buy Mark Zuckerberg. And what, like parade him around or something? Like, what, what do you mean? What? <laughs> like a dog? Let's keep smoking the news. <laughs> She's an original breeder with a golden bong, internationally recognized as one of the dopest mamas in the game for her futuristic breeding capabilities. Voted as top 25 women in cannabis making history and the CEO of the award-winning original breeders league. Y'all know who it is coming to the stage next Priscilla Agoncillo. What you got for us today, P? Thank you so much, Rico. So I have got a little bit of a downer. Uh, My story is more young people begin recreational cannabis use illegally in states that legalize it. Uh, Once a state legalizes recreational cannabis, residents are more likely to start using it, including those too young to do so legally. Uh, allegedly this report, uh, well, this report, um, uh, report researchers at the University of California, San Diego, uh, that's what their finding was. So the findings, uh, published online in the May 26, 2020 issue of addiction counterclaims that legalization does not increase cannabis use, particularly among the youth. The study that I'm talking about tracks 6,925 youths and 14 1,938 adults using data from the Population Assessment of Tobacco and Health in the United States, or PATH. The study authors found that young people ages 12 to 20 were more likely to become cannabis users in states that legalize recreational use than in states that have not legalized the drug. uh, The 2020 Natural Survey on Drug Use and Health 17.9% of people aged 12 or older, which is approximately 49.6 million persons, reported using cannabis just in the past 12 months. Subjects in the study lived in four states that have legalized recreational cannabis use in recent years. Those states were California, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Maine. So um, using the PATH data made the study the first to estimate age level changes in a nationally representative longitudinal cohort. Um, So they're saying that 
that really gave them more accuracy in their findings. The study also had a much larger sample size than the previous efforts. So the uh, authors of this study is Yuyan Shi, a PhD associate professor, uh, and Christian Gennady, both at UC San Diego, and Bin Zhu of UC San Diego and South University of Science and Technology in China. Also, something that's important to know about this study is funding uh, for this research came in part of from NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, I have stud I have followed a lot of the studies um, under the direction of Yu Yan Shi, and it always they always have come out very, very negative against cannabis. You know, whatever the study is, if you just look it up, you'll see, you know, that their findings somehow are always negative um, and show uh, cannabis in a very negative light. So anyway, this is Priscilla reporting for the SEC News Hour. There's another study that just came out, and uh, the method was pseudo-underage patrons were sent, pseudo-fake fake underage patrons were sent to 50 randomly selected licensed adult use outlets in the state to see if they could get in without valid identification of their age. And the results were that the uh, underage, pseudo underage patrons were required to show age identification to enter into 100% of the licensed outlets. So there you go. All of them. Every single one. China. China, China, China. Uh, going back to sleep, Jason. It, it's clearly a, a biased uh, report. I mean, the statistics that they're even quoting there about the percentage of people in America above the age of 12 that use cannabis focuses on everybody over the age of 12, not people between the age of 12 and 20, which they are. You know, which is what the study purports to be about. So they're manipulating the, essentially the results of the study to try and articulate that there's more of a problem than there really is. It's, it's all propaganda. Exactly, Brandon, exactly. My concern is that, the, that, this is, that UCSD is the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. So this is our tax dollars in California going to this type of research, uh, you know, it's propaganda and it's costing us money. Let's get another university in California to do uh, a different study that perhaps returns uh, more positive results or information for the cannabis industry. You know, there are some great people at UCLA doing a lot of studying on cannabis. Absolutely. Yes. Let's get uh, Nicholas's story in. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. That's right. He's a blunt-blowing Fresno-based man of the people representing the black conservative voice whose existence Joe Biden would love to strip their hood pass for, for even acknowledging. Here to change the narrative, that's right, it's the governor himself, Nicholas Wildstar. Thank you, birthday boy. Good day and happy Thursday, State of Cannabis. My story for you today is about how Slow County has taken the lead on creating cannabis-friendly spaces in California. Grover Beach is officially the first local city to allow cannabis lounges to operate within its borders. According to a, a city news release, the Grover Beach City Council adopted an ordinance at its May 23rd meeting 
to allow and regulate on-site cannabis consumption areas and temporary cannabis special events. The move allows the city's four existing cannabis retailers to operate cannabis lounges where people can smoke, vapor, eat cannabis products in a legally allowed setting. Grover Beach has four cannabis retailers that have demonstrated their commitment to following the city's regulations as they generate economic activity. Mayor Jeff Lee said in the release, we are confident that our cannabis retailers will maintain these standards if they pursue on-site consumption for their customers in a safe and responsible way. The council directed staff to pursue the ordinance in January, saying all four retailers had expressed interest in adding a cannabis lounge to expand their, their customer base and provide additional sales opportunities. Officials at the time said additional tax revenues from lounges would help support city initiatives and projects to address address current concerns related to the potential impact of outdoor smoke on surrounding areas. The proposed ordinance requires outdoor consumption areas to have odor-absorbing ventilation and exhaust systems to prevent any odor, vapor, or smoke from being detected outside the property boundaries, and to prohibit consumption areas from being visible from any public space or non-age restricted area, according to the release. Only the four cannabis retail businesses that have been approved by the city council can obtain a cannabis consumption business permit, according to the release. The ordinance also includes requirements for special cannabis events. Also, in the release, any consumption area that includes smoking or vaping must be designated building or fully enclosed structure like a tent um, with a ventilation system that prevents odors from being detected off-site. The city council took great care in making this decision as the city continues to lead the way in creating a safe, thriving local commercial cannabis industry. City manager Matthew Bronson said also, enabling our businesses to provide safe consumption spaces for both local residents and visitors, expands economic opportunities in Grover Beach, and strengthens our revenue sources to better serve our community. I thought I'd share this article because it highlights exactly why it's so important to get involved in who is representing you on your local city council. I'm looking at you, Fresno. You don't have to wait for the president or the governor to get shit done in the town that you're in. All you got to do is vote, vote, vote. This is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. The Governor, reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour. Speak now and further. Yeah, don't forget to vote in the primary election. It's so important, and we need a consumption lounge in every city in California. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Zsa Simone Brown. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you tomorrow. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. Yeah. <laughs>
Watch out for colored socks. China. China, China, China. Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you, too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it today. With the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.